Good morning, Peachtree. It is so good to be back with you and preaching once again. And we are live. If you're watching this at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, we're so glad to be gathered. And even though we might be in different places and homes, how God can unite our hearts and our minds and our lives together for the common purpose of Christ in the world. And I'm so excited to be with you for this next season and to be sharing a series of messages. Honestly, I get a little nervous when I take so much time away from preaching. It's almost like, do, do I still know how to do this? And Pastor Chuck, because he has the spirit of encouragement, texted me a few moments ago and told me not to worry that eternal souls hang in the balance and that I've probably forgotten how to do anything significant at preaching. So we call Chuck Barnabas kind of behind the scenes because of his gift of encouragement. And Chuck, as you're watching this right now, I hope you spilled a little bit of your coffee on yourself as you watched worship today. I want to begin today actually with a story of a guy by the name of Bruce. His name's Bruce Filer, and he's a native of Georgia, grew up in the Savannah area. And uh, everything in Bruce's life seemed to kind of magically turn to gold. Um, did well academically, ended up getting to go to Yale and then a little school on the other side of the pond called Cambridge. He traveled the world. At one time when he was in Japan, he would write these long letters home kind of humorously and sometimes poignantly telling of all the different things that he had learned abroad. These letters actually went viral the old fashioned way that when he sent them to family members that they were so good and rich that they would actually Xerox them and hand them out to their friends. And when he came back from Japan, people were like, oh, I loved your letter. And he's like, excuse me, do we even know each other? And so he became a, a popular author, travel writer, and went all over the world and even spent some time, you know, walking in the footsteps of the Bible and connecting to his Jewish roots. I want to show you a picture of Bruce's life as it started to develop into family life and had this great family and everything just seemed to be going wonderfully, economically, all the above. And then things started to change. The first change in Bruce's life is that his dad, who had been a rock in his life, developed Parkinson's disease. And out of that illness, his dad attempted to commit suicide on multiple occasions. Adding to that, there was the Great Recession and all of the wealth that they had tied up together had been put into kind of family real estate business and all of that crumbled before the very eyes at the same time as that somebody who was in journalism and in print form books, all of those monies and pipelines seemed to be drying up. And then Bruce felt his own life begin to shake when he was diagnosed with a rare and late onset form of pediatric bone cancer that he developed in midlife. He had 16 rounds of chemo, and he had one 17-hour grueling surgery where they had to replace his left femur with a titanium rod. Bruce really thought that his life was over and that everything that he had knew, everything that he thought he could count on, everything he thought to be true, seemed to be flipped on its head. 
Bruce doesn't refer to these moments as interruptions or disruptions. He calls them life quakes, where the very foundation of your life seems to tremble and to crumble. And so Bruce began to, as an author, go on a journey. He began to ask people, what is the shape of your life? He began to ask this question to hundreds of people and began to explore it for himself because his life had taken such a dramatic and significant turn. For most of human history, Bruce discovered that we tend to think of life as a circle. We tend to think of it as cyclical. We looked for so many years in human history of the seasons of life and that we are all subject to these grand forces that are beyond our control. And if you happen to be singing from The Lion King, The Circle of Life, and humming it in your mind right now, that is the anthem for the cyclical model of the shape of a human life. But with the advent of technology, particularly that of the clock, we started to think of time as something that you could manage, as a life that's something that you could educate, and that everything could be done more and better and faster. And so we started thinking of life as a line, a linear progression to life that always goes up to the right. Yet what if life is so much more than circles of fate? and lines of always getting better. When you think about your shape of your life and mine, those models just don't seem to really work because life is far more unpredictable than that. We're calling this series of messages the uncertain times. And in doing that, the reason that we're calling them the uncertain times is because that seems to be the most common adjective that I hear today is dealing with unpredictability and uncertainty. And when I mean uncertain times, I want to share with you what what I think I mean by that. And so there's kind of four different ways that I want to share with you on that, that there's technological uncertainty today, that we relate to one another differently today, we work differently today. Never in human history have we had greater capacities to heal and to make better, as well as the capacity to hurt and to harm and to kill. There's also political uncertainty. This probably goes without saying if you don't have your head in the sand. The ways that we govern ourselves and relate to one another as a society, all of that, the old categories of even being able to understand truth anymore seems to have shifted. There's religious uncertainty. The way that we have a center of value or a worldview or a habit or a practice. I read one study recently that said that a third of American Christians haven't participated in a religious ritual online or otherwise since COVID started in March. Religiously speaking, things are changing. And then there's personal uncertainty. I've spoken with so many of you who have lost a job or who have experienced the loss of a loved one or the fracture of a relationship, maybe these are not theoretical questions for you, but they're personal ones. And you're in the midst of a whirlwind of uncertainty right now for yourself. Well, if that is your journey, and if you're wondering if the shape of your life might be a question mark, we're going to talk about 
what God is doing in the midst of our uncertainty and the unpredictability of life. One of the things I want to be really clear about, though, is this. You are not going to have me over the course of this series coddling you into the sense of there, there, everything's okay. Things are really hard right now, and they're harder than they've ever been before. Because guess what? There have been other really challenging seasons in history. And if we're willing to see with not only the eyes of faith, but just with the eyes of reality, I mean, you can, many of you probably remember the 1960s and the upheaval that that was, or maybe even earlier during World War II and how the whole world was turned upside down in that moment. Go back to the Civil War or even to the Revolutionary War. And while you may not remember that directly, you might remember your history and knowing how incredibly challenging those seasons were. And you go back even further into other periods of time, like the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, or even like the fall of the Roman Empire. There's one particular season that many scholars say that might be the hardest era for people to survive and thrive in. And it was known as the Late Bronze Era, and that collapse. Started in around 1200 BC, and this period of darkness lasted for over 300 years. Barbarism, tribalism, piracy, hunger, famine, violence. Everything that they knew was crumbling and some advents of some new technologies that people didn't know how to use and use well. This was a really hard era and I cannot share with you enough how important it is to read certain segments, large segments of the Bible with the lens of how challenging and violent this era was. You think about the period of the judges and in the midst of the late bronze era collapse is one figure, the one figure in the Bible and the Old Testament that more is written about and with than any other figure in the Old Testament. And his name is David. And if you know anything about David, you know his life was not linear. Far from the fact. For you see, David was the kind of person who was plucked out of obscurity. He was the eighth son in a long family line. And all of a sudden, someone comes barging into their lives and anoints him that he's going to be the king. But there's this huge gap between when David is anointed as king and when he gets to live as king. He's going to have to fight giants. He's going to have to hide in the wilderness. He's going to have to conquer a city. He's going to have to establish a capital. He's going to have to face the challenges of King Saul who wants him dead. David is the kind of person who's going to find that even when everything seems to be set in motion, that he's tempted, that he falls to that temptation and that even generationally later that he finds himself having to flee to the wilderness again and yet in spite of all of this David prays and David sings and David confesses David's life is anything but a predictable life but it's a life that we can learn from it's an important life And if there's anything I want you to hear in this entire series of messages for the next eight weeks, it's this. Yes, life is unpredictable. Life is uncertain. But God is reliable. God is faithful. God is still here.
God has not forsaken us. And so let's jump into today's passage today. We're going to be looking at how the story of David unfolds in its beginning and its genesis when an old, jaded, cynical prophet by the name of Samuel comes to find the next king. Let's read this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. He arrived in Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his son and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by and Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are there any, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, and we will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, which I'm sure went over really well. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel went to Ramah. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but the understanding and the putting into practice of the blessing of his holy word. This morning, I want to share with you four quick things that God is still doing in the midst of uncertainty. In this passage, we get to notice four things that God is still doing in the midst of this collapse of a particular life and an era that is so uncertain. God is still searching, still speaking, still selecting, and still sending. God is still searching, speaking, selecting, and sending. And I want to talk first about how God is still searching right now. As I mentioned before, Samuel is kind of old and jaded and cynical, And he's put all of his eggs in the King Saul basket and anointed him to be king. And God confronts Samuel and is like, how long are you going to mourn? How long are you going to grieve? How long are you going to hang on to this old way of doing things? Because I've come to search for somebody new. 
might be wondering, what was God looking for? What is God searching for? Well, we find out with this passage, this famous part of the story where it says, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at, at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. God is still seeking and still searching for hearts. In fact, in another famous phrase that's reiterated in the New Testament, but earlier it says this, it's going to refer to David as a man after God's own heart. For the longest time in my life, I thought this meant that David's heart was always after God, but that never really made sense to me. I mean, if you actually know David's story, he gets it wrong just as much as he gets it right. How can it be that David is uniquely after God's heart? I finally read a scholar who interpreted this passage for me in a way that actually makes sense. What it means for David to be a man after God's own heart? It means that God has set his heart uniquely upon David as he searches and seeks and pursues his heart. The reason this makes sense to me is right there in David's name. The word David means beloved, not the one who loves, but the one who is loved. Between my freshman and my sophomore year of college, I was given a late present for graduation from my aunt and uncle who lived in Wyoming. My uncle used to teach for the National Outdoor Leadership School, and he took me to this beautiful place. It's known as the Wind River Mountains, right next to and nestled to the Shoshone National Forest and the backcountry of Wyoming. It was 10 days of solitude and backpacking in some of the most magnificent country that I have ever witnessed. What you need to know is at this point in my journey, I didn't want anything to do with God, and I had given up on God. I remember sitting in my dorm room and I had written a paper for a sociology and anthropology class and my roommate was reading it and proofreading it and it talked about my disbelief of God. And he said, Rich, do you, do you really believe what you've written here? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he said, I will pray for you because my heart was far from God. And yet when I was hiking in those mountains, and I was alone. There was one who was searching for me and pursuing me. And I remember a specific moment. It wasn't an audible voice, but a moment where all of a sudden I could feel God's presence. And it was as if God was saying, Rich, I'm here. The question is, are you? You might be in a place right now where you're far from God or you don't want anything to do with God. I resemble that. But God has not given up on you. God has not stopped for a moment pursuing your heart. You can be a woman or a man after God's own heart. You can be beloved. And it's not because of anything that you do or I do. It's because of God's claim and how he chooses you. 
And so the first thing that God is still doing, even in periods of uncertainty, is that he is searching. But the second thing that we know that God is still doing is that he's still speaking. He's still speaking. One of the most remarkable characteristics in this passage to me is the conversational relationship that Samuel has with the Lord. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, of course, that makes sense. These were Bible times. This is how God talked to people. But you need to understand the context in which this is written. It actually says what the word of the Lord was like in that time. In describing Samuel in chapter 3, in this verse, it says it like this. It says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Samuel had a conversational relationship with the king of the universe in a time when it seemed that God's word couldn't be heard. I want to tell you right now that God has not stopped speaking. And I want to challenge you to ask God a question. I'm guessing that you've asked God's questions before, but most of the questions that I get to hear that people ask God are really questions in the form of a request. It's more that you want something from God than you were inquiring of God. One tends to be a little more transactional. The other is more relational. When was the last time you asked God a question that you didn't know the answer to? I can tell you in my own life, particularly over the last six months, I've been asking God some questions. I've been asking questions of God, how am I supposed to lead a congregation in a time when we can't gather and when there's a global pandemic and the normal things that we typically do, we can't do right now. And while I haven't heard that audible voice, God has been speaking to me through the wisdom of others, the gift of his word, to provide insight and conviction and passion, and even in quiet moments of prayer. Another question that I've been asking God is because I'm a dad of two teenage girls. How do I be a good father of two high school girls who are going to go to college in just a few short years? I've never done that before. Lord, how do I do that well? And I can tell you that even within the last couple of weeks, God gave me a clear answer to that question, that prayer. I was reading through the Bible and came across a verse that felt like a lightning rod to my heart. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And I knew, I knew the minute I read that verse that that was a word of the Lord for me that I needed in order to be a really good father. I needed to be humble and gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love. I firmly believe that God is still speaking today. And so God searches for you. He is still speaking to you if you will be open. But also that God is still selecting. One of the things that's so great about this passage is that David's the runt of the litter and he's the underdog. And I mean, we just so root for David in this story. And he's got seven older brothers and he doesn't have a chance. And and yet there's another part of me that as I read the story that, that should make us feel a little uncomfortable because it's like, 
another brother walks in and God's like, nope, not him. I have rejected him. And you're like, well, what did he do? And so there's this choosing and rejecting that goes back and forth that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. And, it's, and the reason for that is, is, is because you and I often, when we read the Bible, we have what I would refer to as kind of our, our heaven radar or our salvation filter always up. And we're always thinking of God choosing and rejecting in regards to it's all about getting into heaven after you die. That's not what's going on here. There is a heaven. There is a reality. There are choices. But that's not what this is about. David's not being chosen for eternity in heaven. David's being chosen for a task, for a job, a role, an assignment. The selecting and rejecting that's going on here is for a call. God has selected you for a call. And if you've never been through a process of discernment, particularly in the upheaval and uncertainty of today, I want to invite you to consider doing something that several hundred people through Peachtree have done in the fall. Maybe consider going to be a part of a journey of life unique where you get to discern how God has uniquely made you and that you can go through a process of that discernment in community to be able to explore how God has selected you for something. We're elected not merely for salvation, but for service. And by the way, if you're wondering whether God is still searching for you, I want to invite you into another process that's going to be this fall. Uh, we've got this ministry at the church that's called Alpha, and it's where we bring our questions to God, and, and we get to understand that God is still pursuing each and every one of us. And perhaps maybe even in the, what I talked about in the second point of God still speaking, maybe you want to hear desperately from God. I want to invite you into what we're going to be launching into this fall after Labor Day, what we're calling Belong studies. And in these studies, there's going to be opportunities for you to learn how to get into God's word or to pray. And these are going to be incredible opportunities for you to be able to take a step in your spiritual growth and to understand that God is selecting you. God is speaking to you. God is still searching for you. And then once you have done all of that equipping and all of that discipling and all of that learning, there is something that God is still doing even in an age of social distancing. He's still sending you. God has never stopped sending people where they've needed to have gone. God sends Samuel. God sends David. And God will send you. I have a friend right now whose life is in the form of an incredible upheaval, both for his family as well as his career. And many of us keep asking the question, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. But I know I'm going to go. I'm going to follow. And borrowing the words of Soren Kierkegaard, he keeps talking about how life is not a problem to be solved. It is a story to experience. God has this friend of mine on a difficult journey, but it is a part of the story and the experience of the shape of his life. 
I began today with Bruce Feiler and talking about that question, what is the shape of your life? And he tells the story of a man, ironically enough, by the name of David. Out of all of the hundreds of people that he interviewed, David grew up in Detroit as automobile royalty. And yet instead of going into the family business, he ended up becoming a famous performer. His brother tragically died of AIDS. He had a terrible addiction to alcohol. And yet God met him and encountered him in searching for him, in speaking to him, in selecting him for a role and sending him out. He ended up going to seminary and becoming a Lutheran pastor, a journey that his wife said she would not go on with him, and she abandoned him. When Bruce Feiler interviewed this man named David, whose name means beloved, he asked him the question that he asked everybody that I'm asking you this morning. What is the shape of your life? And David's answer, the shape of my life is the cross. That my life is the intersection of God's mercy and a broken world. But the shape of my life will be redemption. You and I in Jesus Christ don't have a cyclical life where we are just victims of the process of the seasons and forces beyond our control. And we don't have a linear life where everything gets to fit in its little categories and makes sense to us, where every day is always better than the one before. The shape of your life and of mine is that of the cross. I told you when I was backpacking and hiking and spending time in the Windover Mountains, God met me. God was searching for me. And there was a little song. You know, when you walk, sometimes a song comes to your head. There was a song that was written in the 80s. It was a hymn. It was something that we used to sing in church and in childhood, learned it in youth group. It was a song about God where he said, I, the Lord of sea and sky, I have heard my people's cry. All who dwell in deepest sin, my hand will save. I who made the stars of night, I will make the darkness bright. I will give my life to them. Whom shall I send? I, the Lord of wind and flame, I will tend the poor and lame. I will set a feast for them, my hand will save. Finest bread I will provide until their hearts be satisfied. I will give my life to them. Whom shall I send? God will take our hearts of stone and make them hearts of love alone, this song says. Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? Here I am. Just as I presented myself before the Lord 30 some odd years ago, maybe God, through His Spirit, is speaking to you right now for you to present yourself to Him. It's as if God is saying, I'm right here. Where are you? 
Will you pray, here I am, here I am, here I am.